So um, I'm going to pray for us right now after we welcome those of you watching online right now from coast to coast and across the Fruited Plains. My name's Joe. I'm the pastor here at Lynchburg City Church. If God puts it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. Pray with me right now. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. We love you because you first loved us. Man, that's good news. I pray that some of us who need encouragement right now, that we would just be reminded of how much you love us. Lord, we think of the president. Um, we pray for wisdom for him, that you'd guide and instruct him, that you'd give him a special grace, that you'd protect him, Lord, um, protect his health, protect his, his mental faculties, Lord. Um, please take care of President Biden. Help him to make good and just decisions. And Lord, we think of our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guardsmen, those serving at home and abroad. We pray for their safety and their protection. We also, Lord, we pray for their salvation. So many of those guys, they're not saved. They don't love you. They're not following you. Please save them, Lord. And God, we think of the persecuted church right now, Leah Sherabu, being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria because she's a Christian. We think of Pastor Yusuf in prison in Iran because he's a Christian. We think of Pastor John and Pastor Wang imprisoned in China because they're Christians, Lord, for our, the Christians in North Korea. For the Christians, Lord, in Afghanistan, in Eritrea, and the South Sudan. God, please help them. And right now, we remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them, as the author of Hebrews instructs us. Jesus, please Please help them. And for the rest of us here today, I pray that you would help us. That you would free us from whatever competing thoughts are, are vying for our attention. Lord, that we just hear from you today. We want to hear from you. We don't want this to be a, a waste of time. So I pray that you'd give encouragement to those who need encouragement. I pray that you'd give conviction to those who need conviction. Um, Lord, that you'd keep me from error, that you'd help me to only say what you want me to say. If there's something that you don't want me to say, then don't let me say it today. And if there's something I need to say that I have no plan on saying, I pray for a fresh filling of the Spirit and that you'd give me a word today. We need you. Always. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Part 16, part 16, uh, through our journey, through the gospel, uh, according to John, and if you're joining us for the first time, uh, just up front, we love expository preaching at Lynchburg City Church, that's where you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, a lot of really uh, valuable uh, things come because you do expository preaching, number one, it helps you to not take verses out of context, so, so I'm not going to come up here, read a bunch of random Bible verses, and then just kind of make up my own story. That's, that's one of the benefits. The other benefit is it helps maintain the uh, author's intended meaning. And so lots of really, really beneficial reasons why we do expository preaching, why we go verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter through the story. And that's what we're doing. So this is the 16th sermon I preached in John's Gospel. We're in chapter 6. It's a very familiar story if you grew up in church, the feeding of the, the 5,000. And more than that, it's one of the unique stories that's found in all four Gospels. Now, in my introductory remarks to John's Gospel many weeks ago, I said, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, those are known as the synoptic Gospels from the Greek word meaning to, to see together. And so what you'll find is if you read a Bible story in Matthew or Mark or Luke, 
They'll be overlapping. I'm like, wait, didn't Matthew say that? I just read that in Luke. John's very unique. 90% of the content in John's gospel is only found in John's gospel. However, this is one of those stories that's mentioned and referenced in all four of them. And so we're going to get right into it. Chapter 6, verse 1, it says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. So he goes to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, but it's also called Tiberias. It's got two names. Galilee, the, the Hellenistic name for the lake, and then Tiberius, the Roman name that was given to it by Herod Antipas around 20 AD after they completed the city of Tiberius on the, on the western shore. And that might sound strange or even unnecessary that it has two names, but providential political leaders like Herod Antipas, they would do things like this all the time to suck up to their boss. Okay, this is just brown nosing here. That's why it has two names, because his boss, Emperor Tiberius of the Roman Empire, he's like, oh, I'm just going to name it after him. That's what's happening here. That's why it's got two names. And so it says in verse 2, and a large crowd was following them. You say, how large was the crowd? Well, verse 10 tells us there was 5,000 men there. Most commentators believe and estimate that this is somewhere around 20,000 people. Any you guys at the Liberty football game yesterday? Okay, so, okay, whoa, okay, several of you were at the game, right? So I think there was 18,000 people there. Just imagine, as many people at the football game, there's probably more people here. Okay, upwards of 20,000 people are following Jesus right now. And as verse 2 says, because, that's the key word, they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. And of course, this is problematic, both then and now because it gets at the motivation for why one's following Jesus in the first place. Like in, in other words, do I follow Jesus because I want Jesus? Or, or do I follow Jesus in hopes that I can get from him what I really want? And this is huge. This is what today we refer to as the prosperity gospel, the, the health, wealth, and cotton candy version of the gospel that Jesus will give to you if you give your life to him. And so we're like, oh, Jesus, he give you that Mercedes out there? He sure did. Dude, uh, sign me up. I'll take two of those. When in reality, it's not a gospel at all. It's a, a fake gospel. It's a false gospel with false teachers that propagate demonic doctrines that are found nowhere in scripture. And if you remember, this is not the first time this has popped up. It came up in chapter 2 verse 23 when many of the people, they were really interested in Jesus because of how it might benefit them, what they might get out of it. But as John chapter 2 24 and 25 pointed out, Jesus, it says he wouldn't entrust himself to them because he knew, as all people, what was in them. In other words, back in chapter 2, he, he knew what was in their hearts. He knew their motivation. He knew what they really treasured. Just as he knows what we really love. He knows what we really treasure. He knows what you really love more than anything else. And so verse 3, it tells us, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with his disciples. Uh, not 
super theological implications here. He's sitting on kind of a mountainside. Okay, I imagine 20,000 people kind of horseshoot around him. Um, if I was there, I would have been standing. I would just had too much pent-up energy. I could not not stand. But Jewish rabbis would sit as a sign of their authority. I remember learning that early on in one of my first seminary classes. My professor told us this as he kind of sat back, reclined, put his feet up on the desk, and then proceeded to lecture the whole time that way. That, so, so that's kind of a, a cultural thing there, but it's a sign of, of his authority in that culture. And so he's there, and it says, verse 4, now Passover... The Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. And the reference to Passover was, of course, to this historic remembrance celebrated every year by the Jews when God saved the people out of Egypt and out of slavery. Right? They, they killed the lamb, they put the blood above the doorpost, the death angel passed over, they're saved, they're delivered, they're rescued. And yet for the, John, the evangelist who is writing this gospel, I think there's got to be something else he's got in mind here, right? And that just as God provides the sacrificial lamb at Passover hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years ago, he's also provided for them here and now the ultimate sacrificial lamb, the savior of the world. He's here, he's here right now at this very moment. And then it says, lifting up his eyes, Lifting up his eyes and then seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? He said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. He knows, right? And Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little so the story, it turns to Philip. And just to clarify, this of course is a different Philip than the one that meets the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. This Philip is one of Jesus' 12 disciples, whose name means lover of horses. Anybody in here love horses? Nobody. Okay. We're in, I didn't know. I'm just doing a poll, right? No one... We don't love horses here at LCC, apparently. No, this guy, his name means lover of horses in the Greek, and yet we're never actually told his Jewish name, despite the fact that he most likely would have had one because all of Jesus' 12 apostles were Jewish. So, so why the, the, the Greek name? Well, you have to understand a little world history here. Greek civilization had spread throughout the Mediterranean after the conquest of Alexander the Great in the 4th century BC. And as a result, many people had adopted Greek language, Greek culture, Greek customs, including, it would seem, Philip's family, who very well may have been a family of Hellenistic Jews. It is Greek-speaking Jews. But it was back in John chapter 1, verse 44 to 46, where we were first introduced to Philip. And it was a really, really cool story, one of my favorite stories, so much so that we're actually going to go right back to it right now. It says, now Philip was from Bethsaida, John 1, the city of Andrew and Peter. And Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and, and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, you got to be kidding. Paraphrase. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, just come and see, man. Just, just come and see. Get, just, you've got to meet this guy, Jesus. One of the more admirable moments for Philip. However, today isn't really one of those moments in chapter 6 for Philip. You see, here 
when we meet Philip again in chapter 6, it seems that one of his roles as a disciple of Jesus was in the area of administration. You guys like administration? Yes. Okay, Spencer, Elijah, Gabriel, three of you like administration. That's cool. Uh, Philip was the administration guy. Like, sort of like how Judas was in charge of the money. Philip, it would seem, was, he was probably the guy in charge of arranging the meals, the logistics. Philip was the, the numbers guy. But Philip also comes off as sort of the company guy in the meeting when someone ever presents an idea. He's the guy that's like, nope, that won't work. That's Philip, right? Some of you guys know this. Maybe you've had a project or you've worked in a company or an organization. Someone brings up an idea. Maybe it's a good idea. Maybe it's not. But there's always that one guy and they're like, no, that won't work. That's, that's kind of like Philip. He was the master of impossible, as MacArthur says. As far as he was concerned, almost everything fit into this category. And notice in verse 6, Jesus says this to test him. See, he wasn't testing him to find out what he was thinking, because Jesus already knew that. He wasn't asking for a plan, because he also knew what he was already going to do. But rather, he's testing Philip so that Philip would reveal to Philip what Philip was like and what area of his faith was weak. Jesus does this to help Philip, to teach Philip, to, to show Philip what he needs to see. So when he asked him in verse 5, where where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? It seems seems Philip's already running the numbers. Like he's going around and he's like, okay, there's one, there's two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Oh man, this is not good. Yeah, 20,000 people. This is not going to work, right? We're going to need, we could have eight to nine months worth of wages and, and we couldn't even get everybody a full meal. That's how he knows, right? He, he, he already has the answer ready when Jesus asks him. You see, for, for Philip, he only sees the pessimism. He, he's overwhelmed by the impossibility of the situation. Despite seeing Jesus turn water into wine, despite seeing him heal a man who couldn't walk for 38 years, despite seeing other miracles that Jesus performed that that aren't even mentioned here. Yet here, Philip can only see the problems. Here, Philip can only see the challenges and the reasons why it can't be done. And honestly, he's not like totally wrong. They need close to a, a year's worth of wages to even have the funds necessary to buy everyone like one meal. But this is why Jesus asked him to help him learn and grow in this area in which his faith isn't very strong, in which everything just seems so impossible, in which everything just seems so hard. Like for some of you, you've seen God do some amazing things, and yet when you face a tough situation, or even like Philip, an impossible situation, you just don't really believe that God can handle it. Some of you, are just like Philip, in which everything you view is through this pessimistic lens. You've got this fatalistic mindset that the problem you face is just too big for God. You're like, there's no way I'll ever be able to get victory over this specific sin in my life. It's just too hard. The temptations are too strong. Or you're like, well, there's no way I'll ever be able to marry a godly spouse who loves the Lord, so I'll just settle. 
girls in particular love to, love to do this, and then they, they end up making excuses for little boys who go around pretending to be men. And the girls usually make it worse because they just justify the guy's immature behavior. And they'll say things, well, he's got so much potential, or he really tries hard, or he just had a stressful week. And, and girls, let me just say this right now. You do your significant other absolutely no favor by lowering the standard. And gentlemen, some of you guys are just as foolish. It's like, we're, if the girls are here lowering the standard, you're like, let's just get rid of the standard altogether. It's like you're so desperate to have a relationship, but you've got zero faith that God can help you find the person that he has ordained for you, and then you wonder why you feel hopeless, because like Philip, you consider the size of the problem instead of the solution. All your focus is on the mountain instead of the one who can move mountains. Not to mention, at any point, does he ever bother to ask Jesus for help? Like he could have said, hey, you... Remember at Cana, you did that thing where you turned water into wine? Can, can, you, can you do that with bread too? Because that would be really great right now. Nope. Never bothers to ask Jesus for help. Never considers the, the possibility that Jesus can help. And then I think, well, no wonder. It's like so many of us are like here today and we've just got this pessimistic, fatalistic, like depressed outlook. We feel so discouraged. Like I, I would too. Because you're like Philip, and you look out, and you see 20,000 reasons why it just can't be done. And you know there's absolutely no way to solve the problem of feeding them. I would be too. And then comes verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, There is a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they for so many? Andrew shows up. Got a bunch of Andrews here in the church. Good name, right? All the Andrews I know are good guys. This guy's a good guy. Andrew shows up, right? And if you remember, uh, he's actually the very first of the disciples to be called by Jesus back in chapter one. And, and notice what he, he does here. He brings the little boy in the food to Jesus. Five loaves, two fish. Andrew's like, I can't fix it because the problem is too big to solve. And, and I know that five pieces of bread and two fish, I, I know that can't feed anyone, but you know what? I'm just going to bring them anyways. I'm just going to bring what I have to the master. I'm just going to bring what I have to Jesus and see if Jesus can't just maybe make something happen out of this. And I think his response gets at the heart of faith. Like he knows five loaves of bread and two fish aren't going to solve the problem. They can't get the job done. And yet in the very fact that he does this demonstrates his faith that Jesus, maybe Jesus, maybe he just might be able to do the impossible. But therein lies the problem. We're usually more like Philip than we are Andrew. We see the impossible and we don't see what's possible with Jesus. And so it says here in verse 10, Jesus says, have the people sit down. Just sit them down. Now, there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. And Jesus then took the loaves. And when he had given thanks, he distributed to them, to those who were seated. So also the fish, as much as they wanted. 
And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. Despite the disciples' sense of hopelessness, because they, they do feel hopeless. They're, they're upset, right? They're, I mean, how, how are you going to fix this problem, right? There's no way we can do the problem. Imagine Philip just like beside himself, because he is the numbers guy. He's always figuring this stuff out, and he can't. It's frustrating. Jesus says, yeah, sit down. I got this. I got this. And he does what only Jesus can do. And then if you notice in verse 12, it says, after this, he said, gather up the leftover fragments so that nothing may be lost. Did you catch that? Keyword, lost. Keyword, that's why I told him to bold it. Here's the key word. And I think we need to pause here for a second. Because if you think the significance of verse 12 is that Jesus is being a conservationist, I think you maybe have missed the theme of verse 12. Because the theme of verse 12 is not like, waste not, want not. That, that's not it. You'd be very mistaken if you thought that was it. Right? I don't think Jesus' chief concern here is wastefulness. I don't think his main concern here is with the expiration date of the food. And it's also interesting that he stresses this point here. He says, gather up the fragments that nothing may be lost. And it's really interesting because the Greek word lost it actually carries a lot more theological significance than we may actually realize when we just read past this. To say it another way, the concern in this chapter is not just the lost or perishing food, but the lost and the perishing people. When you skip forward a few chapters to John 17, 12, this is John 6, 12. You go to John 17, 12, same Greek word for lost is used there. And in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 12, it says, while I was with them, I kept them in your name. You have given them to me. I have guarded them and none of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scriptures might be fulfilled. In other words, when he speaks of gathering up all the food here that none may be lost, I think Jesus has in mind more than just the concern of of the expiration date of the food and the concern would be the preservation of, of the people of God in the church. Because he's not going to lose anyone that belongs to him. Like if you're here and you belong to Jesus, you are secure. If Jesus has saved you, Jesus will keep you. For those of you who maybe this week you're you're like, am I really a Christian? I don't know. I'm struggling with my faith. I'm having struggles with like my uh, eternal salvation. Or or have you not heard that it was said? In Philippians 1.6, and I am sure of this. That he who begin a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Jesus doesn't lose anything. He doesn't lose anything. Church, be encouraged. Be encouraged for those of you who maybe this week you just messed up royally. You sinned your butt off royally. And the devil's been lying to you and attacking you. You're not really a Christian. You're not. And so he says in verse 13, so they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. That's interesting, right? 12 baskets, leftovers, not 11, not 13. And I'm not like a big numbers guy. I'm not the guy that says, hey, we can calculate this and like figure out when Jesus is coming. Like, I'm not like, like, like weird when it comes to numbers. Normally, it's like, hey, there's numbers there. Why, why did like Noah's ark have 
like three decks because God told him to have three decks, right? I'm not like trying to like force a spiritual meaning there. Like, oh, it, it somehow represents each member of the Trinity. That's not actually there. But I do think it's interesting. He says 12 baskets. Like, why not 13? Why not 14? Mr. Piper was very helpful in this. This is what he said in commenting. Surely it is no mere coincidence that there are 12. Jesus calls his disciples the 12 in verses 67 and 70. And I think the point of verse 13, I think the point is this. It's, it's more than just math, right? It's to show and illustrate for us the massive reality that God takes care of his people. God, God provides for his people. God is an, enough for his people. And that's really good news for those of us like Philip who struggle that God can do really hard things, really impossible things. I think the point of verse 13 is to strengthen the faith of his people. And so he says, when the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. The prophet who is to come. Of course, this reference here in verse 14 goes all the way back to the Old Testament to Deuteronomy 18.15. In Deuteronomy 18.15, Moses prophesied, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. And Jesus, of course, is the fulfillment of the Deuteronomy 18.15 prophet. The, the problem is, while the people are right about fact he is the prophet they don't understand the role that he's going to play and they don't actually listen to him as Moses told them to Moses said you want to listen to what he says they don't listen in other words he's not there to triumph over the Democrats sorry Romans he's not there to be your personal ATM he's not there to make your life easier and healthier or wealthier but he is there to be the better Moses and the parallel couldn't be more obvious than right here in today's story. Just as Moses was with the people and God gave them bread from heaven, he gave them manna, so Jesus is here with the people, giving them bread from the little boy's lunch with one big difference. He's not like Moses, he's the better Moses. Moses was with the people, but he didn't perform the miracle, God did. God did the miracle of manna, the bread given from heaven, whereas Jesus is God giving the bread now. He is doing the miracle. And not only that, but he doesn't just give the people bread to eat. He is the bread the people need. He is the bread of life. And when the people identify him as the predicted prophet that Moses said would come, the problem is they don't, they don't see him correctly and they don't, they don't listen to him. And that's the same problem that the world has today. They believe in Jesus and that he was maybe a real person, but that's where it ends. They don't believe that he, he is who he really is, and they sure as heck don't listen to what he has to say. And so verse 15 says this, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, so they first identified him as prophet, now king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now this is interesting, I think, because they're not totally wrong, because he is a king, right? Isn't he? He's a king? He's a king. Just not the, the way you think he is. 
He says, I'm going to come and I'm going to conquer, just not with armies. I'm going to rule, but just not through elections. And so what we discover here in verse 15 is that in the crowd, there are apparently these political activists who were dead set on making Jesus king. There's just one problem here. You can't make someone a king if they already are a king. You can make someone who is not a king a king, but not someone who already is. Like imagine you go into the Oval Office and you say, President Biden, I'd like to make you president. He'd say, come on, man. I already am president, right? I mean, you're right, right? He is the, we don't make him president. He already is the president. And yet, despite this truth, you'll hear a lot of preachers talking about how you need to make Jesus Lord of your life. And as the great Vody Bachman would say, that's just impossible. You don't make Jesus Lord of your life because he already is Lord. You don't make him Lord just like you don't make him king. He already is. You're just in rebellion against him. You don't recognize it. You don't acknowledge it. You don't bow the knee to him. You don't pledge your fealty to him. See, the problem for the unbeliever is that he failed to acknowledge that. And so when this happened, Jesus, he's like, I'm out. I'm out. He just withdraws away. But why? I think the answer is because the people's excitement is misplaced. They they aren't happy for who he is. They're only happy for what they want him to do, what they think he can do for them. Like today, there, there are people today, and they exhibit a great deal of enthusiasm for Jesus. The problem is, in many of those instances, they're not actually excited about the real biblical Jesus. He's the socialist Jesus, or the capitalist Jesus, or the GOP Jesus, or the DNC Jesus. In other words, the goal is not how useful he might be to help us get what we really want, but rather the goal is that we might see him correctly, otherwise you can't know him correctly. So in the feeding of the 5,000, the point is that the Son of God has come into the world not to give you bread and meet all your physical needs, but to be your bread and meet all your spiritual needs. Not to give you what you want, but to be what you need. And and so just as Jesus tested Philip when he said in verse 5, where are we going to get bread for these people? It's so important that we remember the great things God has done in the past in order to help us each new day in the future. Because I'll tell you right now, the problems that seem so daunting in this moment, they won't be the last. There'll be more problems. There'll be bigger problems and bigger issues that you have. But for those who obey and listen to Moses, we do it with the hope that the better Moses is alongside of us every step of the way. Jesus, the great God King, the mover of mountains, is not the giver of just bread, but of everything we could ever need. He gives and provides for his people. Oh, that our faith might be strengthened. And so we pray, Lord, Strengthen our faith. Give us faith to trust what you say, Lord. Give us faith, Lord, to believe. We need you. Please help us. I pray that you'd convict those of us once again today, Lord, that need conviction. 
and you'd encourage those of us who need encouragement. Like Philip, you show us where our faith is weak, where we're not really trusting you, where we're maybe making things an idol or making excuses for sinful things or bad things or bad relationships that we shouldn't be. And that we remember, Lord, that you, you can do the impossible. And so we pray these things in your great name, amen.